This podcast is sponsored by What They Believe series, a docu-series exploring faith through conversations. If you're a congregation would like to share your history and spirituality, go to whatthebelieveseries.com to find out how you can participate. Visit now to find new episodes and learn about supporting this project. The views and opinions expressed during Eye on the Triangle do not represent WKNC or the student media. Your dial is currently tuned to Eye on the Triangle at WKNC 88.1. Thanks for listening. I'm Aaron Kling, WKNC 88.1's Eye in the Triangle, and folks, today we're talking about our citizens in Puerto Rico. Now, we live in a difficult time. Between the COVID-19 global pandemic and the ongoing discussion of American policing, it may seem strange to turn our attention to the Caribbean. And yet, we very rarely direct attention to Puerto Rico, even in times of great crisis. As an example... In 2017, the United States, among other nations, was struck with three hurricanes in rapid succession. Hurricane Harvey in Texas, Hurricane Irma in Florida, and Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico. Each of these disasters received a response from FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, and each hurricane inflicted its own death toll on United States citizens. The issue of Puerto Rico getting the short stick begins to emerge when casualty numbers are compared. Please note that these numbers reflect both deaths directly attributed to the hurricanes and deaths connected to the hurricane's aftermath, such as those who suffered from exposure, medical inaccessibility, or disease. Harvey had an estimated 103 reported casualties. Irma had 96 casualties, 92 in the mainland United States, and 4 in the Virgin Isles territories. Puerto Rico had 2,975. For every American citizen that died in Hurricane Harvey and Hurricane Irma combined, Puerto Rico suffered nearly 15 deaths. How could this be allowed to occur in a country whose populace are considered American citizens? Well, to be frank, pretty easily. In today's episode of Eye on the Triangle, we'll be taking a look at the historically imbalanced relationship between the U.S. and Puerto Rico. As it turns out, Hundreds of miles off the southernmost coast of Florida, American colonialism never truly died. So what exactly is Puerto Rico? Puerto Rico is not its own nation. Its official designation is an unincorporated territory, a location that falls under the jurisdiction of the United States. Broadly speaking, this means that citizens born in the Commonwealth of Puerto Rico are American citizens and are able to emigrate to U.S. territories freely. However, as only residents of U.S. states or the District of Columbia can vote, Puerto Rican residents, whether born or emigrated, are unable to vote for U.S. presidents or elect senators. In fact, Puerto Rico cannot participate in the Electoral College, elect representatives, or have much of a say in anything besides the selection of presidential candidates. Not only does this disenfranchise 3.2 million American citizens, any American moving to Puerto Rico will also find their voting rights removed. 
Despite being shut out of much of the democratic process, Puerto Rico is not exempt from senatorial or congressional rulings and is expected to respect the decisions of the United States. Decisions they don't have a lot of say in. So what does this mean? Without representation from Puerto Rico, what incentive do politicians have to ensure Puerto Rican interests are identified, respected, or pursued? Political careers decided by popular elections are built on campaign trails, promises of support, and the rallying of the public. There's an exchange that occurs here. Political attention and investment in return for voter support and hypothetical election to a position of power. As cutthroat as it sounds, mainland candidates have no strategic reason to assist Puerto Rico, and the issues that affect the Commonwealth are not issues that could build platforms. Puerto Ricans are deprived of a voice with which to bargain politically, and thus their priority in politics remains stagnant. What does it mean when an occupied territory lacks a political voice? To answer that question, let's travel seven miles off the Puerto Rican coastline to the island of Vieques. Vieques was once home to a thriving local sugar production industry, before an industry slump allowed the United States Navy the chance to purchase or appropriate land during World War II. So began a 60-year period of weapons testing, during which 500-pound bombs were unintentionally dropped on Puerto Ricans, killing one and injuring four others. Locals eventually managed to claw the territory back into civilian hands, but by then, the region had seen thousands of tests, including the deployment of napalm, Agent Orange, and depleted uranium rounds. Today, Vieques boasts an alarming rate of cancer, cardiovascular disease, and diabetes, higher than much of the surrounding Caribbean. Connections between the higher incidence of disease and munitions testing conducted by the U.S. Navy remain contentious, but the fact remains that Vieques' land was acquired with nearly no opportunity for resistance by the local population. Let's move further back now, to the 50s. Back then, a pair of researchers were working on a revolutionary way to control fertility, the female birth control pill. Yet, while the pill was unfinished, they needed somewhere to test it on humans. They chose Puerto Rico. Now, I and the Triangle has done segments on the birth control pill in the past, and the benefits contraceptive pills have offered women are certainly fantastic, but the pill's history is not entirely clean. In 1955, gynecologist John Rock and biologist Gregory Pincus assembled the first human trial of Envoid, the precursor to the modern oral contraceptive. The decision was made to bring the pill trial to Puerto Rico, as the project already possessed resources there in the form of New Deal clinics, and due to the territory undergoing a simultaneous poverty crisis and population boom. Representatives went door-to-door -door in the village of Rio Piedras, offering women the opportunity to receive birth control pills and report on their effects. The selected individuals were staggeringly poor, with no options of birth control beyond sterilization. They were only made aware of the pill's ability to prevent pregnancy, but not of any potential side effects once the pill got inside the human body. Listeners might wonder why Puerto Rican individuals had few fertility choices beyond sterilization. Well, this circles back to the clinics, once funded by Roosevelt's New Deal, but eventually turned over to Clarence Gamble, heir of the Procter & Gamble soap fortune, and also a staunch eugenicist. A brief summary of eugenics, on paper, it was believed that the human species could be improved through selective breeding to cure issues of health, disability, and illness. But in practice, it resulted in the mass sterilization, forced or otherwise. 
of minority populations and those with disabilities. What brought Clarence Gamble to Puerto Rico was the belief that the population explosion and rampant poverty were undesirable traits that required removal. The women involved in the trials were volunteers, determined to avoid the absolute option of sterilization and desperate for a way to control their fertility. Thanks to Clarence and his eugenicists, these women had only the choice of an often irreversible surgery to change their fertility. Pincus and Rock, for their part, were certain of the pill's efficacy and passionate about its coming role in family planning. However, Envoid's composition contained roughly 10 times the hormone quality of modern contraceptive pills, and side effects in Puerto Rico mirrored what the mainland United States would experience years later. Volunteer subjects reported nausea, dizziness, headaches, blood clots, and depression. These reports of side effects were often disregarded by the trial with the subjects labeled as unreliable, and the program pushed forward despite their complaints. Even a few deaths were linked to the trial, though a lack of autopsies and investigation left the connection uncertain. The wake of this treatment has been difficult for the Puerto Rican women involved in the trial. With their concerns ignored and their participation based on a mission of information, many felt as if they were guinea pigs rather than pathfinders for women's health. Well, who can really blame them? A poorly tested treatment was administered, one that may have cost four of them their lives. But medical testing isn't the only issue between the U.S. and Puerto Rico. To shift our view to the present, it is well known that Puerto Rico has been struggling with an ongoing debt crisis, one that has lasted for years. As of the present, Puerto Rico owes $46 billion in outstanding debt. But how did the island territory reach this point? Essentially, in 1917, Puerto Rico was allowed by the United States government to issue bonds that were triple tax exempt, which enabled investors to gain enormous amounts of profit. Puerto Rico used these bonds to finance infrastructure projects and rapidly accrued debt as a result. Amendments to the Constitution relaxed budgetary constraints and raised debt ceilings, allowing Puerto Rico to continue to gain debt. Additionally, the Jones Act required all U.S. water shipping to be conducted with only U.S. built and owned ships which impacted Puerto Rico particularly hard due to its status as an island territory. Well, what else? In 1966, Bill Clinton began phasing out important subsidy programs for Puerto Rico, leaving the territory to foot a larger bill. The economic depression reduced the country's total income by 14%, leaving almost half the population below the poverty line by capita. Finally, it is important to note there has been a historic imbalance between the 50 states and Puerto Rico in regards to government spending on public programs, such as Medicaid. The gap in support is sizable. In 2015, the state of Mississippi received $3.6 billion in federal funding, compared to Puerto Rico's only $300 million. As Puerto Rico has a population of almost 3.2 million people, comparable to Mississippi's $3 million, it's easy to see how such a funding gap has caused healthcare workers to flee the island for the mainland. This exodus further feeds the debt spiral through a persistent brain drain, that's the loss of talented workers to overseas industries, depriving the territory of tax revenue. Puerto Rico got to this point, and it's easy to stand from a distance and claim that the constant assignment of debt bonds was the territory's choice. Yeah, sure. Yet, with the island's short change in its funding, it had to source funding from somewhere to keep the lights on, so to speak. And the other states in the Union aren't exactly free of debt themselves. Remember how Puerto Rico is considered an unincorporated territory? That means the island can't file for bankruptcy. 
leaving them beholden to investors that feel that recouping an investment is worth closing down hospitals. Speaking of keeping the lights on, in 2017, the American Association for Civil Engineers gave Puerto Rico a failing grade for their power grid, claiming that even modest wind events could result in a collapse in electrical infrastructure. Puerto Rico suffered the second longest blackout in all history, accounting for 3.4 billion customer hours of no power, contributing to the country's death total from Hurricane Maria. The same report mentioned that Puerto Rican authorities are effectively running patch jobs on infrastructure projects, rushing to keep electricity flowing, lacking the resources and funding to achieve long-term stability. Funding discrepancies may seem like arguing points in a political race, but people's lives rely on governments being able to provide funds. America has left Puerto Rico to languish as a convenient territory, and our citizens are paying the price for it. So let's summarize. Puerto Rico is a small island territory owned by the United States, held in a state where it can't demand greater independence, but is starved of funds and has been used as a testing grounds for experimental drugs and weapons. Its people, our citizens, have been wrought by a massive hurricane that the territory is still recovering from. Said recovery effort has been hampered by years of low funding allocations and a debt death spiral that only now shows any signs of improvement. So what then? Why bring up all of this in the middle of a pandemic, in the middle of police violence against protesters? Why should Puerto Rico get any attention? Listeners, the territory of Puerto Rico is still full of American citizens. Individuals that are a part of the Union just like the rest of us. And our administration, both Democrat and Republican, have been regulating their people to the sidelines since the Spanish-American War in 1898. The third anniversary of Hurricane Maria's landfall is next month, and it's important to remember that the storm didn't miss our nation. It hit us dead on with catastrophic results. Awareness is just the first step. I and the Triangle hopes its listeners will reach out to representatives, senators, and elected officials to remind them that Puerto Rico is a topic of conversation. Get out there and do your own research on how you can help our southernmost citizens. Puerto Rico and its people deserve better than what we've given them. I'm Aaron Kling with WKNC 88.1's Eye in the Triangle. Thanks for listening, everybody. Even before the pandemic, the majority of North Carolina's eight-year-olds, especially those from low-income families, lagged in reading proficiency. A new online tool developed by the North Carolina Early Childhood Foundation shows how the state stacks up to national averages on factors that influence third-grade reading skills, from low birth weight to regular school attendance. It's aimed at helping educators and community services providers, such as Karen Mills of the Partnership for Children of Johnston County, County, prevent kids from falling too far behind. Mills says the Pathways Data Dashboard sets the stage for measuring reading progress at the statewide level. Really where it's going to be helpful with COVID and where we are right now in our schools is to see what the impacts are going to be two years from now. How are children varying from before the pandemic and after? And that'll help us to identify areas where, you know, we really need to focus. The latest data show slightly more than half of the state's third graders are proficient in reading. And both state lawmakers and Governor Roy Cooper's Early Childhood Advisory Council have called for better data measures 
members to help guide early education policy and improve reading outcomes. Mills says she plans to use the online tool to collaborate more effectively with community partners and county leaders, address inequities, and ensure that despite the challenging times, children are on track to read at grade level. It's important really to reaffirm that these indicators of whole child and and child well-being are key to early reading success, but beyond that to high school graduation and college and career readiness and employment. She says the dashboard includes North Carolina-specific data, in some cases at the county or school district level, on more than 60 measures of child development that researchers have found influence third-grade reading scores. Three out of four rural voters in North Carolina and six other swing states are concerned about the country's handling of the coronavirus pandemic, according to a new poll. The survey of more than 7,000 residents from ruralorganizing.org found 54 percent of voters disapprove of the job that President Donald Trump is doing to curb the outbreak. Executive Director of ruralorganizing.org Matthew Hildreth says more rural residents are looking toward their local and state health officials for information on the coronavirus. The voters are looking for leadership on COVID-19, and I think I think they're finding it at the local and state level, but they're not finding it at the federal level. He adds nearly three quarters of rural voters in battleground states are concerned about the virus spreading at schools and universities, and 63 percent are concerned about the lack of widespread testing. 60 percent of those polled say they are are concerned about social distancing measures' negative effects on the economy. Hildreth says rural voters often are not committed to one party over another. They tend to pick the candidate that's speaking most most to them, and so we've been seeing quite a bit of movement among rural voters in North Carolina especially. He says North Carolina's rural voters will be pivotal in determining who controls the U.S. Senate this election cycle. Noting the survey found 43 percent of rural residents say they support Democrat Cal Cunningham, while 42 percent are for Republican Tom Tillis. Meanwhile, Democratic Governor Roy Cooper has 47 percent of the rural vote, and his opponent, Republican Dan Forrest, has 43 percent. North Carolina is one of 18 states currently facing an uncontrollable spread of the novel coronavirus, according to the nonpartisan watchdog group COVIDExitStrategy.org. The finding is based on an analysis of the state's performance on certain CDC-recommended benchmarks, including a two-week decline in residents experiencing flu-like symptoms, a diminishing percentage of COVID-positive cases, and appropriate hospital capacity. Katie Craig of the North Carolina Public Interest research group says her organization believes at this level of spread, it's impossible to effectively trace and track the virus among the population. So currently health experts recommend a daily case incidence of about three per 100,000 before reopening. Um, And here in North Carolina, we're actually at about 18 per 100,000 and seeing that continue to rise. According to data from the state's Department of Health and Human Services, so far more than 129,000 North Carolinians have tested positive for COVID-19 and more than 1,000 currently are hospitalized. More than 2,000 residents have died. Craig says a number of factors have contributed to the uptick in coronavirus cases. Testing is being slowed down, so it's slower to get results. So even if you get tested 
and then continued about your daily lives, you might not know for four or five days that you tested positive over a week ago and then probably also had been doing things before that while you were positive. Governor Roy Cooper recently announced this week that phase two restrictions, which include closures of bars, movie theaters, gyms, and amusement parks, will be extended until at least mid-September. For North Carolina News Service, I'm Nadia Ramlagan. Welcome to 2020 Talks, where we track the 2020 elections in uncharted territory. There seems to be some frustration on the Trump campaign part of, you know, well, Joe Biden is not out there campaigning and and, and it seems like every week his poll numbers get a little better. University of Missouri professor Mitchell McKinney explains why he thinks the Trump campaign asked for another debate. Why did he come around and change complete, you know, reversal from, you know, I'm saying I'm not going to debate or may not debate to I want more debate. Well, look who's leading. The Commission on Presidential Debates denied their request. Ohio will hold the first one. Polls there show a tight race between Trump and Biden. And in Iowa, Minnesota, Wisconsin, and Michigan, a recent survey from Focus on Rural America indicates problems for the president as well, says spokesman Jeff Link. When we said, who do you think would do a better job for people living in small towns in rural America? In 2016, this would not have been a close call. It would have been Trump over Clinton. But in these four battleground states, they choose Biden over Trump, 51 to 35. The president was in Ohio yesterday to tour a Whirlpool plant and sign an executive order requiring the government to buy certain drugs from American companies. Republican Governor Mike DeWine tested positive for COVID-19 in his presidential pre-visit screen. While Tennesseans could all vote absentee in yesterday's primary, they won't be able to this November. Their state Supreme Court ruled this week that fear of contracting COVID is not a valid excuse. Hawaii's primary is tomorrow. It's first with vote by mail. But Sandy Ma with Common Cause says the pandemic has created yet another problem. Given our dependence on tourism and the economy has shut down around tourism, we are really concerned about people having to move from their homes because they're unable to pay their rent or their mortgages and having their ballot follow them. Ma hopes Hawaii will make more places for people to vote in person. Currently, there are only eight locations. We want to make sure vote by mail is coupled with enough polling centers so that it supports people who are disabled people who need language assistance, translation assistance, or people who just want to vote in person. New York's Attorney General Letitia James filed a lawsuit yesterday seeking to dissolve the National Rifle Association, registered in New York, for, quote, fraud and misconduct, unquote. The influential lobbying group spent millions on the president's 2016 campaign. The New York lawsuit alleges the NRA and four of its top executives diverted millions away from the group's stated mission and into its officials' pockets. In response, Trump suggested the NRA should move to Texas. Answering reporters' questions, James made the legal basis clear. This um, has nothing to do with my personal opinion with regards to gun violence. This has to do with the fact that four individual defendants and the NRA as a corporation, unfortunately, did not follow not-for-profit law in the state of New York. And as a result of that, they should be held accountable. From Pacifica Network and Public News Service, I'm Lily Bolke. Thanks for listening at pacificanetwork.org and publicnewsservice.org. The Public News Service Story Newscast for August the 7th, 2020. I'm Mike Clifford. New York State's Attorney General sued to dissolve the National Rifle Association Thursday, alleging that senior leaders of the nonprofit group diverted millions of dollars for personal use and to buy the silence and loyalty of former employees. That's from Reuters. They report the lawsuit filed in a Manhattan court by Attorney General Letitia James alleges 
NRA leaders paid for family trips to the Bahamas, private jets, and expensive meals that contributed to a $64 million reduction in the NRA's balance sheet. The NRA responded by suing James in federal court, saying she'd violated the NRA's right to free speech, seeking to block her investigation. Reuters notes that the lawsuit names the NRA and four leaders, including Wayne LaPierre, the executive vice president, who has been atop the leadership for nearly three decades. Concerns are growing about a potential wave of evictions in the pandemic and economic crisis. We get more from our Mike Moen. With the eviction moratorium and extra federal unemployment benefits expiring, people who lost their housing might try to scrape together what they can for a new place. But staff attorney Brad Peterson feels not everyone fully understood how protections under the Federal CARES Act worked. He says tenants who incurred a judgment for back rent could find it's a roadblock when trying to secure new housing. Some of these people are going to try and apply for housing assistance in the next you know, few months. They're going to be looking at renting from another landlord and they're going to be told that they have to take care of this judgment. He says that might result in requests for legal assistance if the person believes those temporary federal rules might have helped them avoid an eviction. He says it's unclear in legal circles if CARES Act eviction protections can be applied retroactively to eliminate a judgment for back rent. And an annual survey is uncovering the pandemic's impact on health behaviors and attitudes. According to the 2020 United Healthcare Wellness Checkup Survey, about two-thirds of people say walking is their preferred exercise activity, and it's the most popular among baby boomers and Generation X. On the topic of nutrition, Rebecca Madsen with United Healthcare says the survey found some people's eating habits have shifted. 30% of respondents said their diet is worse now than before COVID, and 21% said that it's improved. So I think with more people being home and the propensity to want a snack, or frankly to take better care of your health, these results are all over the map. As researchers race to develop a COVID-19 vaccine, about one in three respondents said they are now more likely to get an annual flu shot this fall. Mary Sherman reporting. In the survey, more than two-thirds of companies say they plan to expand their wellness programs in the next few years. This is PNS. Technology increasingly becoming a tool for the justice system, raising concerns that incarceration could expand beyond the walls of jails and prisons. Hamid Khan with the Stop LAPD Spying Coalition says that the use of house arrest, where people are outfitted with ankle shackles for electronic monitoring has increased during the COVID-19 pandemic. This becomes another tool in the massive information gathering and storing about people's movements, where people have been, and as technology is advancing, a lot of different pieces we can expect to be incorporated around people's location. Khan notes that people pay for the monitors, sometimes as much as $400 a month, A Pew study found about 125,000 people were supervised with electronic devices in 2015. That's up 140 percent from a decade earlier. The coronavirus death toll in Florida's prison system reached 60 on Thursday as a massive surge of infection continues to spread between workers and the people serving time. Corrections Secretary Mark Inch is in self-isolation battling the virus after a visit to Columbia Correctional Facility. He issued a statement last Friday expressing sadness at the death of the first correctional officer, Robert Roberts, due to COVID-19 complications. 
But as the death count climbs, Aaron Haney with the Reform Alliance, a criminal justice advocacy group, says swift action and alternatives to incarceration are needed to save lives. These are human beings who really, really deserve the same protections from this virus that the rest of us deserve. Um, None of the people behind bars there were sentenced to death by COVID. A spokesman for the Department of Corrections redirected our interview request to its website, which shows 9,821 inmates testing positive along with 1,911 staff members as of Thursday. I'm Tremel Gomes. And finally, our Eric Tegadon tells us conservation, tribal, and fishing groups are condemning the Army Corps of Engineers' recommendation to permit the Pebble Mine in Bristol Bay, Alaska. The group say the open pit mine operation would have dire consequences for some of the world's most productive salmon streams. Steve Cohn, director of the Nature Conservancy in Alaska, says the Army Corps' final environmental impact statement did not adequately evaluate the project. There are a number of factors at play that just make this the wrong mine in the wrong place. It's an extremely wet environment, seismically active. It's a proposed mine that straddles three watersheds. And it's a globally significant ecosystem. The Army Corps will make its final decision on issuing a permit in the fall. This is Mike Clifford. Thank you for wrapping up your week with Public News Service. We are member and listener supported on great radio stations across America and online at publicnewsservice.org.